Well, good morning, church. If you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis 3. Genesis 3 this morning as we continue a series that we started several weeks ago called Never Ending, How God's Story Changes Yours. Now, we've been traveling through the Bible. We're going from Genesis to Revelation in 17 weeks, and we've literally been in Genesis 1 for three weeks. So we got a lot of, of scriptures that we got to travel to. But it's been so good to be in God's Word in in Genesis 1 because of several things. It's in Genesis 1 that we find out things about God and thus ourselves. Genesis 1 reminds us that God created everything. God made everything, and thus God will sustain everything. And thus all peace and control that we want in our lives were to give to Him. Secondly, God just didn't make everything. God made you. God knows you and loves you. Thus, your identity isn't based upon what you do or don't do, but rather in what God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has already done. You are not what you think. You are not your failures or your success. You are literally what God says about you in Jesus Christ. Thus, you have a divine purpose for your life. All of life, then, is about loving and worshiping God. And we need these central truths. God made everything. God made me. God created me to love and to worship him forever. Why? Because we go out these doors and we do life. In fact, it was about this time last week that we found on January the 26th that Kobe Bryant had passed away. It's amazing how the death of one man can affect so many other people. There are literally hundreds if not thousands of people, maybe even millions of people that are in complete bewilderment, complete sorrow. It is so humbling to see grown men and women, not just sports commentators, political commentators, secular commentators, literally can't even finish their script because they're just gripped with the reality that someone like Kobe Bryant died. It's just fascinating to watch this, just how could this happen? One commentator said, literally, that Kobe Bryant is the most significant, shocking death of the 21st century. That generations from generations will come and say, I remember when I was, when Kobe Bryant passed away. That is why it is so important that we look to the scriptures, that we remind ourselves in studying the fall and its implications on our lives, that it wasn't always this way. That God is still in control and that God will ultimately meet our greatest need. And God and God alone will come and rescue his people. God made everything and God made you. And God made you to love him and to worship him forever. And the one thing I want you to get before you walk out of here and do life is this. God is for you in Christ. God is for you in Christ Genesis chapter 3. We're going to go over today, verses 1 through 15. We're going to really laser in on Genesis 3, 15. But before we study the text, I want to remind you contextually where we are in this book. Genesis 1 and 2 reminds us that God creates a perfect world that he intends to fill with people who will bear his image and likeness and thus extend his glory, not just to the end of the garden, but through the ends of the earth. Moses in Genesis 1 and 2 reminds us that God is the beginning and end of everything good in your life. The Bible says in Genesis 1.31 that God looked upon the expanse, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the critters and the rivers between. And he said in Genesis 1.31, this is good. This is very, very good. All that you will need in life will come from me because I'm good, God says. All that you love and appreciate in life will come from me because God is good. 
All that you desire, all that you strive for, what motivates you, what challenges you, comes from a God who is good. No wonder James says in James 1:17, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. He's a good, good God, and he is the beginning and end of everything good in your life. And Eden was a special place of God's presence on earth. Loving God and worshiping God was life itself. As Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 1 had perfect, complete, sinless harmony with God. Everything they needed to fulfill the mission and purpose of God, they already had. In fact, they were actually extending the work that God was already doing. They had life and a mind and the ability to see and hear and smell and touch They had provision and beauty all around them. They probably even had Disney Plus, right? They had it all. And yet by the time we come to Genesis 3, not three chapters in the Bible, it is overly apparent in this first verse that something has gone terribly wrong. Just like when you come home at night and all the ladies in your house are watching the Hallmark Channel, something's gone terribly wrong. For Adam and Eve made by an uncreated triune God who made everything that they could see and comprehend, who made them, who knew them and loved them, chose willfully to love something else despite God. And thus the world has never been the same. And so we come to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 15, reminding ourselves that this text answers four primary questions. Four primary questions. Number one, who is Satan? Now, Satan, who appears in Genesis 3.1 and Genesis 3.4, was originally Lucifer, a created holy angel who was banished from heaven because he desired to unserve God's authority and majesty. Now, biblically, this happens in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, and in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. Historically, this happens right after Genesis 1.31 and right before Genesis 3.1. Right after God said in Genesis 1.31, this is good, it's really, really good. And then before Genesis 3.1, Satan fell. Satan says God's not enough. Satan says his promises and my identity in him, no, I'm choosing to give my identity into things and thus consequently he fell. Now, some liberal biblical commentators will say, you know, this is really just kind of an encapsulation, a summary of kind of good and evil, our favorite Greek word of the day, baloney, right? For Jesus himself in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, confirms that this is a biblical fact. For Jesus says in Luke 10, 18, he saw himself, Satan, fall from heaven like lightning, Jesus says. I'll also remind you that the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, says that a third of heaven fell with Satan. That all of the angelic beings, the Bible says, are as numerous as the stars in the sky. And a third of them fell with this guy. Satan embodies a serpent, a snake. He only speaks twice in this entire chapter. And he really focuses on three primary things. It's a system of awfulness that has plagued civilizations and societies now for thousands and thousands of years. Unbelief, idolatry, and rebellion. 
These primary things. Satan, who only speaks twice, attacks God's character in Genesis 3.1. Did God actually say, you, you can't trust the Lord to meet your needs? You can't trust him and his word as sufficient enough to satisfy you? And he plants this seed of unbelief. He literally ignores the authority of God's word in verse 1. In verse 4, he just flat denies it. I, unbelief leads to idolatry. And in verse 4, he, reveal, he takes the revealed word of God and begins to twist it and manipulate it. He's literally, from this impetus of understanding, telling Adam and Eve that your sin is more satisfying than the promises of God. And that is why throughout the Bible, the authors, biblically, give him certain titles and characteristics. Genesis 3, 1, for instance, describes Satan as cunning. It can mean crafty or shrewd in the Hebrew. It describes someone as being aware, one who can anticipate the future. Now, I'll remind you, Satan can't predict the future, but he can anticipate. He has the ability to kind of cunningly manipulate circumstances to a preferred end. In other words, he's not this dumb guy with a red pitchfork. That's exactly how he wants you to think about him. Notice in the biblical text in Genesis 3.1, he embodies a snake. Does that sound like a good idea to anybody in here? Did you realize that two-thirds of all Americans, 66% of all Americans, are, are not just kind of, whoa, about snakes, are fearful the moment a snake gets in the room. In fact, in my house, the best snakes are dead snakes. 19% of all Americans are paralyzingly fearful of snakes. Yet Satan is so cunning, so crafty, so arrogantly shrewd, he appears as a serpent. Now, historical commentators tell us that more than likely it was, it was a, a serpent that probably had the ability to walk because God and his cursings, curses, snakes is kind of a eternal reminder of their judgment to be on their bellies and to eat the dust of the earth through this text. But you get my point, that doesn't make it any better. He's still a serpent. Whether he can stand or jump or sing Sinatra, right? It's awkward. But yet he's so cunning. You know, maybe he was kind of this kind of pre-incarnate, you know, gecko serpent, right? Maybe he had an English accent. Did God actually say? You know, I don't, this sort of make it any better. But this is who he is. He is cunning. He is crafty. And he hates you because he knows God loves you. That's why. He's also, as the Bible says, he's a tempter. He's a tempter. He's literally one that, it's fascinating in the text, God appears every single time in Genesis 3 with his covenant name, Yahweh Elohim. God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do because he is God, that's why. However, the only time in the text when he's not Yahweh Elohim, Genesis 3.1, did God actually say, he literally, in tempting Eve, and by the way, he'll do that with you. God tests in our strengths. God will test you. Satan tempts you in your weaknesses. And he does it over and over and over again. I'll just ignore God's word. I'll just ignore this obedience thing. Hey, just ignore sharing your faith and living for God's glory. That's really not that big a deal. 
to tempt you. Now, I'll also say that historically, Satan tempting an individual in the Bible is a rare, rare thing. Only appears a handful of times in Genesis to Revelation. Two prominent ones in the New Testament. One is Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If he comes after God's son, he'll come after you and your family. Secondly, in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus is gathering at the last Lord's Supper with his disciples. And in the midst of their conversation, they're discussing one another. Who's the greatest? Who's number one? And Jesus looks at Peter and says in verses 31 and 32, Simon, 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 do you realize that Satan has requested to sift you as wheat? He uses an agrarian term that we can appreciate in Oklahoma. Simon, do you have any idea that Satan himself has requested to separate you for your original meaning and purpose? He wants to take you like farmers take wheat from the chaff and crushes it to purify it. That's what he wants to do with you, Simon. He wants to crush you. But Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 32, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, Simon. Aren't you so incredibly humble, church, that we have a God that not only made you, but saves you and prays for you to be everything that he's called you to be. And we have an arch enemy, a tempter, that will tempt you and your surroundings to get you off track. That is why Jesus Christ himself says in John 8, that Satan is the father of liars. Father of lies. He's a liar, liar, liar. Yes, his pants are on fire, right? <laughs> that from his inception, his whole philosophy and this world view is based upon a false reality. Thus, as the father of lies, when you and I sin, we are falsely confessing to the world that we think we know better than God. I mean, think about this. Why do you sin? Why do you choose to love yourself? Why do you choose to think that God has given you and point them to people like, hey, I'm awesome, or hey, I'm good. I can be on my own without God. Why? Because it's based upon a false reality, a false sense of truth, therefore. And thus, sin is a confession that we think we know better than God. And it comes from not God the Father, but rather the Father of lies, Satan himself, John 8, 44. The Bible also says that Satan has the appearance as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Satan is nothing like God. Nothing. If we're not careful, we'll kind of have this eternal dualism of life. We'll just be disney about everything. And so we'll just see life as there's kind of this internal balance. There's a good and there's a bad. And just as good as a good is, there's an evil force. Baloney. Not true. That we in watching these Marvel movies will just be enamored, but not just by the protagonist, but by the antagonist. We'll almost be allured and mesmerized by his power because it's just as equal to those as good. That is the complete antithesis of Scripture. God and God alone is king. All things are subservient to his reign, his will, and thus his glory, period. Satan has nothing to say before the Lord. He gives no orders. He only takes them. But he appears as an angel. 
He appears to have the attributes of God himself. He appears to be omnipresent. He's not. He can't be all things at all times like God. The Bible says in Job that he's, he's very quick. He can go to and fro. Satan is an angelic being. Thus, he doesn't have a physical body like we do. The laws of thermodynamics do not apply to him, but he's not God. He's also, he's not all-knowing. <laughs> In fact, the, the more you read about this clown, he didn't know anything. Beginning is the illusion that he's all-powerful. He knows what's best for you and your family, and thus your future. He's also not all-sufficient. He can't meet your needs. He hasn't created a thing in his life. But yet he manipulates. He takes these images and shadows of light. And literally hundreds of millions of people are lost, are stuck. You want to know why? That's because the Bible describes Satan as a blinder of men. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, said it well that one of Satan's greatest powers, are you ready for this? Is the power of forgetfulness. That he gives men and women, boys and girls, created by God, but yet stuck in their sin because of the sinful nature of Adam, the ability to, and potential to weep over their condition, but the inability to accept a solution. The gospel is right in front of us. The cure in Christ himself is available to all. But yet there's just something that blinds us from the truth. It's amazing to me in reading this week of a report of a cardiologist in Denver. This cardiologist was known for kind of this incredible reconstructive surgery. And so he would take people who needed a double bypass or triple bypass, major surgery. Once they came to this doctor, lives were changed. But the interesting thing was is that he did a study of his patients for the last 10 years. He took all of his patients and had double bypasses and triple bypasses. And he told them, if you continue this lifestyle, if you will not change, then you're going to be right back on this table. You want to know in 10 years how many patients actually took his advice after having this surgery? According to this article, just 5%. 95% of all of his patients admitted that their lifestyle was leading to their own death, came to the doctor for the solution, had radical surgery, double bypass, triple bypass, were told, if you do not change, you will die. 95% of them said, oh, I'll take my luck. I'll roll the dice. How many people did you know that's doing the same spiritually? How many family members and coworkers and classmates and teammates that are doing the exact same thing? They're making the same decisions over and over and over and over again and expecting a different solution. Why? Because in some mysterious way, they're, they're blinded by Satan and his minions. And that is why... Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 8, describes Satan as a roaring lion. Something interesting about lions, I learned this on the National Geographic channel. Lions 
only roar, are you ready for this? After they catch their prey. The Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion. 1 Peter 5.8. We are not just hopeless in our sin, but helpless. And where faith in God and his word fails, mark it, church, as a way of life, sin follows. Unbelief, idolatry, rebellion. Who is Satan? That's what he's about. Secondly, where did sin originate? Now, Satan is the agent that brought sin and temptation into the world. God did not create anything evil. And don't you believe that for a millisecond. God is by nature good and loving and merciful, abounding in steadfast blessing toward you through Christ. However, we do have an agent, Satan himself, that brings sin and temptation and destruction into the cosmos, into the world. And Adam and Eve fell to the destructive temptation of Satan. They deliberately disobeyed God by eating the fruit. You know, if it was brisket, we probably could have understood, right? We could have made some allowance if it was like this chocolate truffle of awesomeness. But fruit? Really? (laughs) And so that is why you have Eve in this sin of commission. But you have Adam is the one responsible for the fall. Eve committed the sin. Adam did nothing in his omission. He's hanging out. eating eating Cheetos and watching Netflix. And he allows inside the garden a snake to talk to his wife, Eve. Does this sound like a good scenario at all? No. We'd be in a lot of trouble, men, if we allowed this in our household. Yet this was reality of the garden. All that God had given him to take care of. All of the responsibility that God had entrusted him to trust God with, he forsook. And thus, the world has never been the same since. So what are the permanent effects of sin? Every aspect of God's creation is in some way tainted or distorted by sin. This is why we have unexpected tragic deaths. This is why we have mass uncontrollable viruses like in China. Political turmoil and unrest that's plaguing our country. This is really the only logical explanation to such heinous vegetables as asparagus and Brussels sprouts. The fall, right? This is where this came from. Thus, consequently, all human beings are made in the likeness of Adam and are helplessly infected with a sin nature in a need of a Savior. Everyone is enslaved to sin and under complete bondage to a corrupt, sinful nature. None of us are immune from sin's consequences, sin's guilt, or sin's penalty. For thus we are created by God, but we are owned by sin. In other words, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that is why if you read Genesis 3.23, God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. Why? Because he's a holy God righteous 
and cannot be in the presence of sin. Even though he made Adam and Eve to bear his image and to represent him as a crowning achievement in his creation, they got to go. Why? Because they chose to love themselves more than God. And your actions have consequences. This is a Jesus Storybook Bible right here. And Brent and I, we, we take our kids devotionally through this Bible, write it, you know, five to eight times a year. It just kind of depends on how fast we go through and those sorts of things. But Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote this Bible. And for those of you who are you know, reaching out to, to kids and grandparents and nieces and nephews, this is a wonderful tool from the scriptures. But she in verse, or in page 34, just summarizes kind of the end of Genesis 3 so beautifully. I want to read it to you. She says, you see, sin had come into God's perfect world and it would never leave. For God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. And their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever in this way. Not in such pain. Not without him. You see, there was only one way to protect them. You're going to have to leave the garden now, God told his children with eyes filling with tears. For this is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children and he covered them. He gently clothed them and sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden and out of their home. Well, in another story, it'd be all over. It would be the end, but not with God's story. You see, God loved his children too much to let the story end this way. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And although they would forget him, and although they would run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him like lost children yearning for their home. And before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. I will come and rescue you. It will not always be like this. And when I do, I'm going to battle against the snake. And once and for all, I'm going to rid the world of sin and darkness and sadness that you let in here. For I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. And so as we have heard of these verses of awfulness, as we have described clearly the enemy of God and the origination of sin and the permanent effects of sin, may we now with everything in our being discuss God's cure, this wonderful ultimate need met by God himself. So what is the cure of sin? The gospel. Genesis 3 reminds us that we need God alone, and it is God who saves through his gospel. Sin is the cause, and the gospel is the cure. God has generously atoned for our sin and completely removed our sin through Jesus Christ. And God's forgiveness and salvation is comprehensive, irrevocable, and permanent. In other words, good news people in a bad news world, be encouraged that God is for you. Because God has more grace 
then you have sinned. Though our daily actions for Christ may fall short and will fall short, our eternal position in Christ is as everlasting as God's love. There is no end, just a beginning. Oh, church, you ready to begin? Genesis 3, 15. Here we go. Now, 14 verses in, God speaks. This verse is the entire focal point of this chapter. Not the actions of Adam and Eve. What they did or didn't do. Not Satan and his rebellion and deception. Now God speaks. He is the focal point. And he says to Satan himself, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. God triumphantly verbalizes his judgment to Satan and promises to personally and proactively act on Adam and Eve's sinful offense. God is more diligent and faithful in his forgiveness of sin than we are in our rebellion to commit sin. Oh, church, remember this truth. Throughout the Bible, God constantly assures and gives confidence to his people, not reminding them about who they are, but in light of who he is. For instance, did you realize that in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7, God tells his people that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God tells his people in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, that despite their unfaithfulness, they're choosing to love and pursue other things. God says, I am faithful to keep my covenants. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, God says, I will forgive your iniquities. I will remember your sin no more. The omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-sufficient God chooses to forget your sin. Incredible. He then says, In Micah 7, verse 18 through 20, and I will cast your sin to the depths of the sea. God does not ignore our sin, but completely pays for, cancels, and removes our sin through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. A death and an offering, not just hinted in the New Testament, But in Genesis 3, 15, look back at this text again. And I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring. You see that phrase right there? It's of a Hebrew word, zera. It can be translated seed or descendant. It's more aptly translated here, accurately, offspring. Offspring here is in the masculine singular. What does that mean? It anticipates a specific one, male descendant from the lineage of Eve who will accomplish God's plan and thus ultimate victory. For Isaiah, 800 years before the death, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That God charged the willful debt of our sin to his willing, perfect, substitutionary sin-bearer in accordance to God's plan, reminding us that God is just as deliberate in our redemption as we are in our rebellion. And it's seen in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 22.18 and Genesis 49 verse 10 and 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 53. And Paul, the greatest Old Testament theologian we have ever been exposed to, says in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to the one and to your offspring, who is Christ Jesus, the Lord. God is for you in Christ. Now, what exactly will God's son do? And where will this take place? Look at Genesis 3.15 again. And it says at the second part of that verse, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I was thinking this week of this text and thus the fulfillment of this text in Jesus and and thus, the passion of Christ. It's a movie in the early 2000s, and it, it's, it's, it's shocking, it, it's humbling. It, you just don't ever watch a movie like that, and you're just never the same afterward. And What that movie does is it takes literally the passion week of Jesus' life. And My favorite part of that movie is really the first part of that movie, where Jesus is in the garden, and he's, he's just overwhelmed. You can just sense this, this sweat that is turning to blood, and he's, he's wrestling with this plan. And it wasn't the fact that Jesus was going to die. It wasn't death on a cross. It was literally God's wrath and judgment and thus God's presence being removed from Christ that he was hesitating on, even even just briefly in his humanity. And he says there in looking in Gethsemane to Calvary, Lord, Lord, in Matthew 26, verse 39, is there any way that you can take this cup from me? Any way you can take this wrath? Any way you can not remove your presence from me? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thine will be done, he says. And he literally looks to the cross. And in doing so, he steps on the head of a snake. And I just literally, in a movie theater one time, when that happened, I just stood up and said, yeah! I just kind of sat out. That's the point of Genesis 3.15. He, this male descendant from the lineage of Eve, God's chosen one. He will literally crush your head, Satan. That's his point. God, through the redemptive line of Eve, will completely annihilate Satan's rule and Satan's reign. The fall of man in Genesis 3 is more aptly the fall of Satan. And the works of Satan, the serpent, has been defanged by the finished 
work of Jesus Christ. Yes, he is cunning. Yes, he is a tempter. Yes, he is an angel of light. He has the potential to blind men in their sin. He's the father of lies. He's a roaring lion. But he's defeated. He's finished. Because Jesus said it is finished. And he is ultimately sentenced to eternal torment. Right here. And ultimately through the work of Jesus Christ. How? (laughs) Did you realize the text even tells us? And he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Continuing the imagery, Jesus will crush the head of Satan at a specific time. Where? When Satan strikes his heel. Prophetically, verse 15 is describing thousands of years before it happened, by the way, the suffering of Jesus Christ on a cross. Satan knows how right here. He just didn't know who at the time. And that's why if you study history and archaeology, you will find plagues in this region of entire civilizations. You will find kings in the New Testament who will try to wipe out male children ages zero to five. Why? Because Satan knows from here you're done. There will be one who will come and he will rescue his people. And what was meant for them, he'll take responsibility for. And thus, what is in him, righteousness and love and grace by faith can be in people who give their lives completely to him. The interesting thing is, is that actually Genesis 3.15 isn't the only Old Testament text that proves this. In fact, I'll remind you that in Psalm 22, verse 1, David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That literally David, a thousand years before Christ died, prophesied that Jesus would suffer and die on a cross. The interesting thing is, is that Jesus actually quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, verbatim on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Which means that God's king was forsaken so we could be forgiven. You see, the price of redemption would cost Jesus his earthly life and reminds us all that he chose the nails. Jesus, before the foundations of the world, in accordance with God's magnificent plan, whispered in Genesis 3.15, verified throughout the Old Testament, confirmed that he knew the weight of sin was going to be placed upon him. And as God's perfect and substitutionary sin bearer through his sinless life, knew that it would be him and him alone that could fix the sinfulness and awfulness of this world. And that men and women, boys and girls from generations to come would be transformed, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. He chose you before the foundations of the world. You see, you will never appreciate that the cross of Christ is for you 
until you understand that it was done by you. And that is why the New Testament writers speak of the crucifixion of Jesus 175 separate times. You want to know why? Because in no religion ever created, no other story is like this. Every other religion says you can work your way to God. You can cast your way to God. You can try your best to appease God and good luck. And if you're not good enough in this life, well, maybe you can reincarnate yourself and come back in another life. It is Christianity alone that says, no, God knew it was impossible for you to come to him. So he comes for you. And he takes on our likeness. He didn't lose his divinity. He added his humanity. And in doing so, he crystallizes once again that there is more love and grace and mercy in Jesus than there is sin in you. And despite how many times we've chosen to love other things and pursue other things and to seek satisfaction and acceptance in other things, he still says, I love you this much. And before the foundations of the world, there was a divine plan and dream of God. And in fulfillment of that plan, it was impossible for you to come to me, so I'm coming to you. And if you will give your life completely to him, then you can have life and life abundantly, now and forever. No ending, just a beginning. And thus you have a choice. According to Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All of us have chosen to love ourselves more than God. All of us have chosen, like our first parent, to not trust the sufficiency and satisfaction of the word of God and thus the God of the word. And the consequence of that choice is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And you can give your life completely to him. And there can be not just another way, but one way. For Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to the Father comes through me. And so where psychologists tell us that we really need three things in life, comfort, significance, and love. Can I tell you that there's literally two kinds of people in this room? Those who I need Jesus and those who I have Jesus. We need comfort and stability, not just about our present, but about our future. We need significance that our education and the work we're doing is making a difference. We need love and acceptance. Can I tell you that you only find that not in some things, but in someone? The comfort, the fact that God made everything and made you and knows you and loves you and thus desires for you to give complete control of a life that's already is, you belong to God. What comfort. Secondly, significance. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is not in what you do and don't do. It's not in your failures or your best you. It's in what Jesus Christ has already done for you. Love. <laughs> A love that never fails. Jesus doesn't have to start loving you because Jesus never stopped loving you. And there's nothing that you can do that can make God love you more. And there's nothing that you can do that can make God love you less. He just loves you. And so if you're here today, and if you're searching for comfort and significance and love, you need Jesus. Give your life completely to him. And what is true of him can be true of you. 
God literally at the cross completely removes, wipes out, cancels the debt of your sin as if it never existed because of what Jesus Christ has already done. And for those of us in this room that have Jesus, may we remind ourselves of the comfort that comes in the gospel. Stop trying to work your way to God. Stop basing your life and your relationship with him upon your performance. What you do or don't do, how exhaustingly miserable. But rather rest in what Christ has already done. Significance, your identity is not in your best day or worst day, but in who Jesus says you are, a child of the living God, a son and daughter of a king, and you are loved and you are chosen and you are accepted in Christ. A love, a love that has no ending, just a beginning. And this is how God's story changes yours. When we realize we need Jesus and we have Jesus, and thus all love and grace and mercy has no end, just a beginning. God is for you in Christ.